Welcome to the Reasonable Theology Podcast, where we present sound doctrine in plain language. We're here to help you better understand, articulate, and live out the fullness of the Christian faith. And now, here's your host, Clay Craby. This morning, we're going to begin the third and final chapter in this short book, in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his true child in a common faith whom he had left in Crete to put in what remained into order in the churches there. He wrote this to a young man named Titus. And our goal is to look at these first seven verses in this chapter. And we could easily spend several months worth of Sundays considering the grand truths that are contained here. And I say that not by way of apology for the relatively brief time that we will spend in these verses together this morning, but by way of encouragement for you to spend additional time studying these verses in the days and in the weeks ahead. For here in Titus chapter 3 and verses 1 to 7, we have the fullness of the gospel and all its implications in the Christian life in miniature. We have the entirety of our desperate need for salvation, We have the way in which salvation is secured and applied to us. And we see also how our hope of eternal life is to impact our actions in this life. And as we begin, you'll notice that Paul's instruction to Titus in this passage is not that he should deliver new, unheard of truths to these Christians in Crete. Rather, Titus is to remind them of what they have already been taught. And so much of what we need week in and week out in the Christian life is reminding of who we are, of who Christ is, and how we are to live in light of our relationship with him. We don't need new and and glamorous revelations. I enjoy Steve Lawson's phrase, if it's new, it's not true. We are dealing with an ancient text, with many, many generations of Christians before us. And like them, we're not here to find some new, fresh revelation or creative insights We need the timeless truths of Scripture. And this passage provides helpful reminders of many of those timeless truths. In fact, there are are three crucial reminders that every believer in this room needs. And as we walk through our passage, we will be given a reminder of how we are to live, a reminder of who we once were, and a reminder of what Christ has done for us. Let's look at these verses together. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy Toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, 
hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As we look at these passages, let's see first a reminder of how we are to live. Again, I read verses 1 and 2 for you. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, first we see this admonition for them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities. That is, we are to obey the government authorities that are over us. We saw this same command in our study of Romans. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every, be, every person... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur, will incur judgment. Now, my fellow Americans, uh, let us not bristle too quickly at this and similar passages of Scripture. Remember that Paul is writing this to those under Roman rule in the first century. As much as we can be dismayed as we watch the news and we go online and we see uh, just how truly pagan our society is, remember that this was written to a society that was far more pagan than our own. And these passages were true for them. And they were true for the church when they were being persecuted to death by the governing authorities. And they had far more cause to bristle at such a command than we do. And yet they are called to submit. So far as the rulers and authorities do not command that which God forbids or forbid that which God commands, we are to be submissive. We are, as the next part of the verse says, to be obedient. Now, of course, we do not obey if and when laws are unbiblical. Or we are compelled to disobey God and his word. In times such as that, we are to join with Daniel, who refused to cease from praying to God. And we are to stand with Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, who refused to bow down before an idol. We are to raise our voice with Peter, who, when told to stop preaching Christ and him crucified, said to the authorities, we must obey God rather than men. 
But those are exceptions to the rule. In general, our heart attitude towards the governing authorities is to be one of submissiveness and obedience. The Christian ought to be a model citizen. And as such, we are to remain ready for every good work. Now, Scripture has much to tell us about good works, and our time in Titus next week will largely focus on our call to pursue them. In chapter 2, you'll remember that we read that we are to be zealous for good works. Proverbs 3.27 tells us, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due, when it is in your power to do it. We are to be ready willing and eager to perform every good work. At the same time, we are to speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. Commenting on this verse, Matthew Henry wrote, If no good can be spoken, rather than speak evil unnecessarily, say nothing. We must never take pleasure in speaking ill of others nor make the worst of anything, but the best we can. We're to speak evil of no one. We're also to avoid quarreling. We're to avoid entering into unnecessary conflict. It is true that the Christian is to stand firm for the truth, and sometimes conflicts will come. But quarreling is to have an eagerness, a desire to enter into arguments and conflict, and that should not be so, instead, we should be gentle towards others. As we see in Philippians 4, 5, you are to let your gentle spirit be known to all people. And to be gentle is to be kind. It is to be patient. It is to be compassionate. It is to be considerate. And we can do this by obeying the call to show perfect courtesy. To all people. Now, don't let that pass by before you feel the weight of what is being said here. We are to show perfect courtesy toward all people. There is no asterisk that says except for difficult people or people who are not like you or who people who you do not get along with. Or to those who are not fellow Christians. We are to show perfect courtesy to all people. And we can't do that if at the same time we regard ourselves as being better than they are. For some reason or another. In fact, we can't do any of these things that we've just listed without a great deal of Humility. We must be humble in order to treat others and to respond to governing authorities the way Christ commands us to in his word. To live a life of selfless service. One of putting another's needs before our own. Be willing to forego what is due to us. To show restraint when wronged. To submit. To be gentle. All this requires that we not have too low a view of others and that we not have too high a view of ourselves. 
Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Behaving as scripture calls us to requires that we approach life with a certain Christian humility. But that is certainly a hard attribute to cultivate, isn't it? It's hard to be humble. What tactic might we employ to become more humble in our estimation of ourselves and and as a result, become more generous in our estimation of others? Well, as if in answer to that question, Paul gives us a reminder of who we once were. A reminder of who we once were. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. But as for you, I'm sorry, that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. And to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He starts this section off with with four We are to submit and obey and do good works and speak evil of no one and not quarrel and be gentle and show courtesy toward all people for or because we ourselves were once just as they are now. We are no better than those who are still dead in their sin. We have merely found forgiveness for our sins in Jesus Christ. Moreover, an honest man cannot look upon the sins of the unsaved in this world without admitting that he too was once as they were, if not much worse than they are. Nothing can instill in us an appropriate humility quite like reflecting on who we once were before Jesus Christ Saved us. And what were we prior to being rescued from our slavery to sin? We see that we were foolish. This is not a comment on our intellectual capacity, but on our refusal to acknowledge God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. We were disobedient. We were always following after our own desires and rejecting God's law and his commands on how we are to live. We were led astray, which is to say that we were deceived. We were wandering about in darkness. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Slaves. Though at the time The person who is outside of Christ sees that they have a great freedom. 
They are unrestrained from, from the dictates of some ancient book is how often they think about their lives. But we see that they are slaves as we once were. As Christ said in John eight thirty four, everyone who practiced sin is a slave to sin. Puritan Henry Skugel rightly observed, there is no slavery so base as that whereby a man becomes a drudge to his own lusts. To be in sin is not freedom, it is slavery. Slaves to various passions and pleasures. The root word here for passions in the Greek is where we get the word hedonism. Hedonism, which is a a pursuit of pleasure above all else. A hedonist is one who destroys their own life in pursuit of temporary and fleeting pleasures. Moreover, we were, we were passing our days in malice and envy. Malice is intentional lawlessness. We not only violated God's laws due to ignorance, we actively went against conscience to do what we knew to be wrong. You've heard the phrase that, that the malice is in the intent, that, that in, in some instances people will see the wrong of something being in whether or not it was intended to be wrong or not. Well, when it comes to our sin, we are wrong when unintentionally we violate God's law and we are more wrong when we do so in full knowledge of what God would have us to do and yet we push forward anyways. That is what malice is an intentional lawlessness and wickedness. Envy, we are familiar with the term envy, but one thing to maybe to correct your picture of envy is not quite the same as jealousy. When you are jealous, you see what someone else has and you want it. Some accolade, some possession, some some giftedness. And you see that in them and you become jealous and you want that for yourself. That's not quite what envy is. Envy is when you see that thing in another person and rather than want it for yourself, you hate them for it. It's not that you want it for yourself. You don't want them to have it. That is envy. It is a a wicked discontent and a disdain for those who have what we do not. No wonder Proverbs 14.30 tells us that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. But envy, envy makes the bones rot. And so, with hearts of envy and malice, slaves to, to our own passions and pleasures, we hate one another. We were hated by others because that's what an unrestrained love of self produces an unrestrained love of self leads to an unrestrained hatred of others and when that sin of self-love is not kept in check by a desire for self-preservation such as the police or by some moral awakening, that self-love will lead to the most depraved 
wickedness imaginable. This is quite the list. And you may recognize your life prior to Christ and prior to salvation more in one of these areas than in another. But it is abundantly clear that we were all truly dead in our trespasses and sins. Remember who you were, Christian. Remember what God has rescued you from. You see, we are never to look back on our past sins with a sort of perverse fondness. Nor should we continue to dwell in shame on that which Christ has forgiven. But we can benefit from taking stock of the absolute wretchedness from which we were saved. The greater danger that you are in, the greater the appreciation you'll have for a first responder who comes to your aid. You can see how that would play out in, in life. If someone helps you up after falling off your bike, you're, you're appreciative. If someone pulls you out of a burning vehicle before it explodes, well, you're a great deal more appreciative, aren't you? Well, likewise, the more we accurately see the miserable condition and the internal danger that we were once in, the greater love you will have for Jesus Christ, our Savior. For we were all under the just condemnation of God for our sin and for our rebellion. If you enjoy the sermons and written works of C.H. Spurgeon, I encourage you to check out the all-new chspurgeon.com. Here you'll find free, unabridged sermon audio delivered with the dynamic of live preaching, articles written by and about the Prince of Preachers, a chronological bibliography of all his books, and much more. This will be a growing library of Spurgeon-related resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. So check it out at chspurgeon.com. But we who are in Christ did not remain in such a sorry state as that, did we? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, speaking to believers, he says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If we lose sight of who we once were, we are in danger of becoming proud of our present condition and looking down on those who are still in need of the transforming power of the gospel. And we will lose the humility that is necessary to live and love as Christ calls us to, which is to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We will also fail to fully appreciate all that Christ has done 
in taking us when we were slaves to sin and making us sons and daughters of the Most High God. To be reminded of who we once were is a means of developing humility toward others by which we can love and serve them as we ought. It is also a means of of developing a gratitude towards God by which we can love and serve Him as we ought. So for the remainder of our time together this morning, I would like us to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. A reminder of what Christ has done for us. Look at verses 4 to 7. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've just seen an unappealing snapshot of who we once were and how we once lived. But this small world, this small word rather, represents a seismic shift in our lives and in redemptive history and so too in our passage. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Just as in Titus 2, chapter 11, this appearance is a reference to the incarnation of of God the Son, the first coming of Jesus. The actual word is where we get the word epiphany. And you'll hear that around Christmas time. It has to do with the incarnation, the coming of Christ. This phrase, loving kindness, indicates God's great love of mankind. This is actually where we we get the word philanthropy. You've heard of a philanthropist, one who loves his fellow man. Well, here it is to its most extreme. God does express a great love for his creation, does he not? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even... When we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so, because of his loving kindness, he is not only our God, he became our Savior. He saved us. He saved us from our enslavement to sin. He saved us from the punishment due to us for our sin. He saved us from an eternity apart from God in hell. As Hebrews 7 tells us, speaking of Christ, he saves to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him. And how does such an amazing thing take place? Well, Paul doesn't want to give us a moment to allow the false notion to sneak in that we somehow brought about our own salvation or we accomplished this by our own efforts. He immediately follows up by stating that this salvation is not by works done by us in righteousness. And why not? Why is it not our own efforts that have either earned our forgiveness from God or at the very least endeared us to God so that he decided to to intervene and give us a little bit of help and tip the scales in our favor? Why is that not the case? Is that not the default position of the human heart? I just need to to do enough good. And as long as I'm better than that guy I know, I'll go to heaven. God owes it to me. Why is it not by works done by us in righteousness? Well, let me tell you this. Salvation does not come by our righteous works because outside of a right relationship with Jesus Christ, you haven't got any. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 4 and 6. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment in the sight of God. To quote C.H. Spurgeon, you have as great a need to be forgiven of your good works as you have for your bad ones. If you are out of Christ, that is because even our most selfless deeds are polluted. They are polluted by sin, either by, by a grudging heart that does it merely out of duty, by a desire for some benefit, a desire for recognition, or some foolish notion that we will place God in our debt. But even if we could put our minds together and and we could come up with an example of some pure, honorable, and righteous work that a person could do, completely unpolluted by sin and selfishness, you would still face the insurmountable hurdle that our meager good works can no more erase our sin and the debt of sin that we have incurred against God, then the proceeds of a child's lemonade stand can retire the national debt. It is an absurdity. It is an impossibility. Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is not by works. As one particularly poetic commentator stated it, salvation is received, not achieved. And it is received by us according to his own mercy. What is mercy? One Bible dictionary defined mercy as the self-moved, spontaneous 
loving kindness of God, which causes him to deal in compassion and tender affection with the miserable and distressed. God shows us mercy. What a stark contrast to the, to the malice and envy of the unsaved heart that we saw in verse 3. He saved us according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, though in our sins we were once spiritually filthy, in Christ the Spirit has washed us clean. As the prophet Isaiah said of the coming salvation, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And we must all be cleansed. We must all have this washing. It is essential. It is a good thing. I recall hearing an apologetic speaker telling about the time when, when he told his unsaved mother as a teenager that he came to Christ and, and she expressed a concern that he had been brainwashed. And so he said, Mother, if you knew what was in my brain, you would be happy that it has been washed. We all need this cleansing and this washing comes by the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The word regeneration, to be regenerated, it literally means to be born again. We must be born again. Just as Jesus Christ explained to Nicodemus at night that in order to be saved, one must be born again. We who were dead in sins must be raised to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and when this happens, we are renewed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And while salvation was purchased for us by the Son... It is applied to us by the Spirit. It is, in that sense, of the Holy Spirit, as our text says. This regeneration, this new birth and renewal is applied to the individual by the Spirit working faith in us in the redemption purchased by Christ. That is one of the main roles of God the Holy Spirit. And our text goes on to provide more insight in the matter by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Note that the text speaks of whom he poured out, not what he poured out. It's always worth reminding ourselves that the Spirit is not some impersonal force, but the third person of the Trinity. And the language of the Spirit being poured out is not unique to our text. Romans 5, 5 teaches us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What a wonderful window into the workings of the Trinity we have in these verses. God the Father pours out His love to us through God the Holy Spirit who imparts faith in us and applies the redemption purchased 
for us by God the Son. And all of this is made effectual for the sinner through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And I hasten to add, only through Jesus Christ, our Savior. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 tells us. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The very name Jesus means Savior. When the angel spoke to Joseph, he said of Mary, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Hebrew pronunciation of Jesus, means Yahweh saves or or God saves. Is that not the central truth claim of Christianity? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As we see in Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, what an amazing and inexhaustibly glorious truth that is. And to what end does the gospel of Christ Jesus bring us? Why is it that we have been saved, washed, regenerated, renewed? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've seen the the basis of our salvation in verse five, that it is it is by mercy and not by works. We saw the means of our salvation in verse six, namely the work of the spirit in us. And here we have the results of our regeneration So that is is a purpose clause. So that Paul is showing us what the ultimate end of these things will be. When we are justified by his grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But we dare not speed past important theological terms without defining them. What is justification? Well, in answer to that exact question, though the Westminster Shorter Catechism answers, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Justification is an act of God's free grace, Wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Again, that's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you're a note taker, that's question and answer number 33. Justification is when we are declared righteous by God based on the righteousness of Christ being imputed. That is transferred to us. It is not that we were righteous, you understand. We were declared righteous. We were accepted as if we were righteous based not on our righteousness, of which we had none, 
but only on the righteousness of Christ imputed or transferred to us. This transfer of our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us is possible only through the faith, through faith in his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. And just as it was mercy which motivated God to send his son to save us from our sins, it is grace that provides us with our justification. Grace is receiving what you do not deserve. And there is no greater grace imaginable than us not only being pardoned for our sin, but being rewarded beyond all comprehension with eternal life in and through and with Jesus Christ. That is what is spoken of here and elsewhere as of our inheritance. It's spoken of as our inheritance. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a tremendous change has come upon us. We who were enemies of God and slaves to sin, now heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ, God's own son. Yes, Galatians 4, 7 declares, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Ephesians 1:11 states this inheritance, first Peter tells us, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being regarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is nothing short of our final and full salvation. It is our glorification, which is the final and full removal of our sin. It is eternal life in perfect communion with God, freed from all the pains and hardships of this life, and freed from everything that might create a barrier between us. It is the full experience of perfect joy. The greatest expression of joy that you have found in this life is but a shadow of the substance that is yet to come. Oh, how needful we are of frequent reminders of what Christ has accomplished for us. It is in reflecting on the glorious gospel that our hearts are inflamed with love for God and his word and by good and necessary application for others as well. Paul began this chapter by providing a description of how we are to live in this present life. But knowing how difficult that can be, he proceeded to remind us of our life before Christ and the glories of the life that awaits us now that we are in Christ Jesus. We were in sin. The depths of which are, are merely alluded to in verse 3. Unable to save ourselves, we were in desperate need of a Savior. And out of an abundance of love and mercy... Jesus Christ came into this world to save undeserving sinners, not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his. By faith in him, we are saved. 
We are regenerated. We are renewed. We are justified. And so, having been humbled by both a reminder of who we once were and by a glimpse of who God is, we are to live in a way that is honoring to God and in keeping with the commands of this chapter and every chapter of Scripture. And as we do so, let us pray that God would bless our obedience by pointing those who remain in their sin to where they too can find salvation and newness of life in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the Reasonable Theology Podcast. Be sure to visit reasonabletheology.org for more helpful resources on understanding, articulating, and living out the Christian faith. In addition to the show notes for this episode, you'll find articles, videos, book reviews, and much more. That's reasonabletheology.org. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the Reasonable Theology podcast, go to reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe and get the weekly email. Each week I send out the latest article or podcast episode, and each email also includes a helpful definition to expand your theological vocabulary, a beautiful painting depicting a scene from scripture or church history, a musical selection to enrich your day, as well as the best book deal I've found that week to add trusted resources to your library. Try it out at reasonabletheology.org slash subscribe.